Again, my name is Paul. I'm the lead pastor here, and we're excited to have you here today. You know, if maybe Genesis has been your home for a while, uh, maybe you're here for the first time, or you've only been here a couple of times, I I feel like this is a a great time for you to be here with us because we just started a brand new series at Genesis last Sunday, and this is actually week two in that series. And today and over the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about the mission and vision for our church. Now, every great organization, every great church has a mission statement, a vision, something that they're looking towards, something intentional that they're following after, something that they want to accomplish, and that's what our mission is all about. We're asking the question, what is it that God wants to do uh, in this church? Uh, What is it that He wants to do through Genesis Church? What is it that He wants to do in our lives right here in Hamilton County to bring glory to His name, to uh, continue passing on the message that Jesus Christ saves? And my hope is that over these next few weeks together, that in some way, by the grace of God, I will be able to paint for you a picture uh, of the type of church that I believe that God is calling us to be. I, I want to lay out for a road, a, a road for us, a road that we intend to walk down as a church. And, and I want to talk to you over these next weeks about things like what we believe is a church. You know, what is it that we value as a church? What are the types of things that will mark us as a church? What, what will make us unique right here in this community as this Genesis Church? And, and the great question is, who will guide us through this process? I mean, who is it that we're going to follow? Who's going to show us the way? And I'm just excited to tell you that it's not me. All right, and I'm excited to say that it's not the elders of the church. That's, that's not the point. That's not the intention. God will guide us. Uh, if we're going to be a church that seeks uh, Jesus Christ, that seeks to be like Jesus and, and follows God and wants to see God do some transforming work in our lives and in our families and in this community, then we must follow God. Uh, We must follow Him. We must go down the paths that He chooses to lead us down. Who is it that will direct us as a church? The Holy Spirit. God Himself, through the power of the Holy Spirit, will direct us as a church. And this is important because God is going to call us down some paths and some roads as a church that will be marked very clearly. And we're going to come to these opportunities, to these intersections as a church, and we're going to look at an opportunity in front of us, and we're going to say, you know what, that makes a lot of sense. We can accomplish that. We've been there before. We've got the resources. We've got the people that it's going to take. That's a pretty safe approach, but we're going to go after that. But there are going to be some times in the history of our church where we're going to face some roads and some intersections and some opportunities that are going to be a little frightening. Uh, They're going to require great faith. They're going to require steps of courage, and and we'll probably even have situations where some will agree and some will disagree, and we're going to have to work on uh, bringing that unity together and preserving unity so that we can all march together ahead, because one of uh, Satan's greatest tactics in a church is division, and and we won't be a church divided. We will be a church unified, and and we're going to walk down some of these, you know, unfamiliar paths as a church throughout our history. You've been there before. I mean, if you've been at Genesis for a while, you've walked down some of these unfamiliar paths that first day that you stepped out of your church or stepped out of, you know, your bedside Baptist community that you were a part of, whatever, and decided, you know, I'll be a part of that thing. I mean, that was an unfamiliar path that you stepped into. I mean, even taking this building, for example, and and some were able to walk in here and see an old, dirty warehouse and think, you know what, we could do church in there, you know, and some of you probably got it. Right away, yeah, I can get behind that. And some of you probably looked at it thinking, what are you thinking? You know, I mean, that's an old, old building. 
you know, we're going we're gonna to walk down some of these unfamiliar roads, some of these paths that aren't quite as clear. We've got to walk down those roads because it's going to be down those roads that we're going to see the greatest work of God in our lives and in our church, you know, where he'll get all of the glory and he'll get all the credit. So this series is called Intersections. And here's what I know. I, you and I have arrived. We've come to this great intersection of opportunity as a church. And with all of our history behind us and the clear sign of God's hand on us now and an exciting adventure ahead. We, we stand at this intersection of opportunity as a church, and, and we must ask the question, now where do we go? And what comes next? Where do we go from here? What is it that God is calling us to do? What does this next chapter in our history look like? I mean, it's time to go. God's calling, and, and we're going to follow Him. And in many ways, you know, the question this morning is, and, and even throughout this series, is what makes us unique as a church? I mean, that, that's really the question. What is it that makes us unique as a church? What is it that sets us apart? Uh, when you came in today, you should have received a worship program. And, and if you got that worship program, you may have found that there was an insert in there this morning. And I, I thought you might appreciate, if you had never seen them before, just taking a look at our essential statements of, uh, of, of essential belief statements. And I realize that I probably have just lost your attention now, and you're just going to spend the rest of the service reading through that or whatever, and that's fine. But this is our statement of faith. These are our statements of faith. And I believe, we believe, that the Bible is absolutely clear on these major statements of faith. And let me give you a little heads up here. You'll find that most evangelical churches, even right here in this community, embrace these same major statements of faith. You know, they may word them a little differently. They may choose a different scripture or two. But most churches proclaiming to be evangelical churches embrace these statements of faith. Well, we call them our essential belief statements. And in my opinion, these are non-negotiable. I believe that the Bible is absolutely clear and certain and true when it comes to these statements. Now, something else. Genesis is a non-denominational church, and I've been spending the most of the last year thinking about what that means. I mean, what, what does it mean to be a non-denominational church? Well, it means that we are completely independent. We are not under the authority of any local church. We are not under the authority of any local governing board here on earth. Jesus Christ is the absolute head of our church. He is the leader of this church, and we fall under Him. We fall under His authority. And as a non-denominational, independent church, we have absolute freedom to make decisions based on what it is that we feel like God has called us to do as a church. Now, what makes Genesis unique even within this, especially uh, what makes us unique uh, set apart from denominational churches, which I don't believe there's anything wrong with denominational churches, but I think it's pretty cool where we are and where we're situated in this. Uh, because we have a pretty cool assortment of people, if you will, kind of a great mosaic, kind of a great collage of people with all these different experiences. I mean, maybe you grew up in a Baptist church or a Methodist church. Uh, maybe Assemblies of God is your background. Maybe the Catholic church. Uh, maybe even the Christian church. You know, I'm kind of amazed even at my own journey of how I believe that God was intentionally using my experiences to get me ready uh, to be a part of this community, to be a part of this family with you, a non-denominational church. I grew up in a Baptist church, 
and, you know, spent all my life in a Baptist church. My parents still attend that same Baptist church. I went off to Anderson University, which is a Church of God uh, university, and was there for a few years, and then went and served on staff as a pastor at a Church of God church in Michigan. And then from there, we went to Louisville, Kentucky, where I served on staff at a Christian church. And now here at Southeast, was ordained there, was ordained there at Southeast, and now here at Genesis, this non-denominational church. So I'm like a mutt. You know, this church mud, I've been around, you know, I've seen a little bit of it all. Maybe some of you are in that kind of a situation, but I'm excited that I really feel like God was using all of his experiences to bring me to this place, to bring me to this, you know, non-denominational church. And I think it's pretty cool that we can come with all of our various backgrounds into this place, into this community. You know, and what does it mean for us? It doesn't matter your background. It doesn't matter your church history or what you believe. We can come together as a body under the name of and the cross of Jesus Christ, and we can embrace these essential belief statements, and we will affirm and uphold the Word of God as inerrant and nothing less than divine truth. And here's the cool thing. You know, because of our various backgrounds and because of our position as a non-denominational church, there may even be some times where we have uh, some disagreements or sorts on what I'd like to call secondary theological issues, but we can, we can use these for healthy conversation to build up this body, to build up this church, to build up, to this, build up this community. I think it's pretty cool how we can all come together under the name of Jesus, under the cross of Christ. We can embrace what's true and make that our priority. Now, do these make us unique, you know, because we're non-denominational or because we have these belief statements? Well, I'm not sure they do. But what makes us unique? You know, I mean, is it the fact that we meet in an old warehouse? Maybe. Is it the fact that, you know, your teaching pastor can wear flip-flops on stage, you know? Maybe. You know, is it the people of this church that make us unique? I think there's a pretty good chance that our people are a part of that. But, but I think there's something else. What makes us unique? I mean, why choose to be a part of a church like Genesis when there are 50 gajillion other churches in the area, right here in our own town even? I think it all comes down to our mission. I mean, I, I think you choose to be a part of a church like Genesis because you're ready to embrace the mission of this church. I mean, it's the what of who we are. It's the intentionality, the path that we desire to take in fulfilling what we believe God has called us, commanded us to do as a church. We talked it for, about it for a few minutes last week. Our mission is a church. Genesis exists. Say it with me. We're about helping people find their way back to God. Okay, that's a pretty poor start. Maybe I wasn't clear enough. Let's say it together. Helping people find their way back to God. That's our mission. That, that's the what of what we're called to do. Every great organization, every great church has a mission statement. It's the what of who we are. What is it that God has called us to do? How are we going to accomplish that mission? Helping people find their way back to God. You know, I wasn't sure I liked that statement when I came to this church. I have to be real honest with you. It's taken me, it, it took me about nine months to kind of get my heart around it a little bit. And then I found that there's just no other way of saying it. And don't make it any more complicated than it is. Our mission as a church is helping people discover what it is to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. That's what we're about. That's what we're called to do. And I, I mean, I think it's a cool statement. I think there's some catchy words in there. A number of you already know it. I mean, I've been amazed at how many people actually know the statement. Some of you even joined this church because you liked what it said or you liked how it made you feel and even what it represents. But I'm concerned. 
You know, I'm concerned as we come to this great intersection of opportunity, as we get ready to take a major leap forward to walk intentionally ahead as a church, that this is our mission statement. I'm concerned because I'm not sure that you and I completely understand the weight and the personal responsibility that comes with such a statement. I'm not sure you and I understand the magnitude that comes with such a commitment as a church. Because if the mission, if this is the mission of our church, and, and if you call this church your home, you are going to have to come to a place as a person where you embrace this as your own mission. It, it can't be just the church's mission statement, and it's cute, and we all rally around it on Sundays. You and I have to own it. It has to break our heart. It has to drive us crazy. It has to motivate us. It has to move us. We, we've got to begin to see people around us, those that are in our closest circles, our family members who don't know Christ, and be so moved emotionally by the fact that they don't yet have a relationship with Jesus. And how can I pray for them? How can I share with them? How can I be an example to them? I mean, such a statement has to mess with you. I mean, you've got to get your heart around it. And the reality of such a statement needs to break your heart as it breaks God's heart. And so the question this morning is, how do we do this? You know, how can we come to such a place, not only as a church, but as individuals where we are so moved by this statement that it truly becomes the mission of our lives and becomes the mission of our church? If you've got your Bible, I want you to turn with me, if you would, to Luke chapter 15. Go to uh, Matthew, Mark, the third book of the New Testament. Go to the Gospel of Luke and go to Luke chapter 15. There are three stories that Jesus tells here in Luke chapter 15 that I want to take a look at. And, and Jesus paints for us three pictures. Uh, the first, uh, the, we are, um, excuse me, we see these three stories by Jesus all in a row, back to back to back. I mean, there's a great trifecta that Jesus is sharing here. And each of these stories has one common theme. Something was lost and now it's been found. And in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells the story of a lost sheep, he tells the story of a lost coin, and he tells the story of a lost son. And Jesus paints the first picture. If you're looking in your Bibles there in Luke chapter 15, he tells this first story. The first story is about a group of sheep and a shepherd. You know, there's a shepherd who owns 100 sheep. My wife and I had a terrible time trying to take care of one dog for 10 years, all right? This guy's got 100 sheep, all right? He's got 100 pets, and one sheep gets lost, according to Jesus' story. And so the shepherd leaves 99 behind to go out and search for the one lost sheep. And when he finds the sheep, there's a celebration. There's a great party for its return. But well, Jesus paints a second picture. And in the second picture, in the second story, we read about a lost coin. And there was a woman who had 10 coins. She lost one coin. And she frantically searched the house. She flipped the house upside down until she was able to find her lost coin. And when she found it, again, there was a great party. There was a great celebration. But Jesus paints a third picture too. And in this third story, this third picture, we read about a lost son. And I'd like to pick up there if we can in Luke chapter 15 and, and read along if we can, uh, beginning in verse 11 about this lost son. I'll read it for you. You can follow along and listen. Jesus continued. Again, he's already told two stories. Now he's going right into the third. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. 
After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods and that that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. It's the third story. It's the third picture that Jesus paints the lost son. The father has two sons. One's rebellious, selfish, unappreciated. He asked to be given his inheritance, which at this time was absolutely unheard of. I mean, what's the younger saying? Let's just cut to the point. The younger son was saying, I wish you were dead, so go ahead and give me my share of the inheritance now so I can go and do as I please. And then the father in his great love responds and allows the son to walk out the door and off into a life of reckless living and destruction. But time passes. The Bible says that one day the son came to his senses. He returns home. And when he came home, he is welcomed by his father. He is restored to this place in his home. And once again, like the two other stories that Jesus told here in Luke 15, there's this great party there's this great celebration over one that had been lost. And you know, there's a reason that Jesus tells these stories consecutively. He's trying to make a great point, and we better be ready to listen. He's painting a picture for you and me so that we can see, we can get a glimpse of what it's like when people are welcomed home, what it's like when people find their way back to God. And for Jesus, this reunion is always worth the celebration. It's always worth throwing a party over. So he gives us three pictures, three stories. One's about livestock, one's about finances, and one's about a kid. I think there are a few common threads that kind of tie these stories together that's kind of interesting. They're kind of like this. The first one is that every story involves a pursuit. In every story, there's a pursuit. It's a great pursuit. And when you think about it, who doesn't like to be pursued? All right, I mean, how many of you like it when an old friend calls you up on the phone and says, hey, let's go get lunch together or something? We like to be pursued in that way. Or maybe an employer comes and pursues you for a job. I mean, that's a great feeling. You know, somebody's seeking after you and, and you're being pursued. Or, or even better, when a guy or a girl that maybe you'd be interested in is pursuing you for a date. All right? I mean, my wife pursued me for like five years. I mean, just like continuously, you know, just, no, I'm just kidding. It didn't happen like that at all. I was the one that asked her out. You know, but we like to be pursued, you know, in this search or this pursuit. And each of these stories were, was relentless. It, it was the all-out search for one sheep. It was the all-out search for one coin. It was the all-out search for the lost son. 
Have you ever, have you ever lost a kid before? You know? Have you ever had that scary moment, you know, when you thought you had them in, in, in your, your eyesight and then they were gone? Jenny and I were about a month ago up at Lake Michigan uh, where we used to live and we were at the beach with some friends and we could tell um, from behind us on the beach where a crowd of people had gathered that something had gone wrong and, and Jenny kind of ventured up there and I quickly found out that a mom had lost her son. And you know what it's like to lose your son at the grocery store or maybe you don't know where they are in the yard or something, but when you're at the beach, you start thinking the worst things in the world. And, and Jenny was with this mom and, 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 and a group of other people and it, it got bad very quickly. And it was hot outside, but she got so emotional that she passed out and collapsed on the ground and she was crying for her son. And, and what began was just a group of people walking up and down the beach, this relentless search for a lost son. And, and fortunately... Uh, he was found. Uh, he had taken off his shirt or something, so he wasn't easily, as easily as identifiable as, what, you know, as, he, as, as he should have been. But, but seeing that reunion and seeing that moment when the mom and the son were brought back together and that relief that someone who was lost had been found. I mean, the shepherd searched for the sheep. The woman searched frantically for the coin. The father wasn't searching when we meet him in the story, but who's to say that he hadn't been searching? And then the Scripture tells us that he goes running after his son when his son's a long way off. Men at this time, patriarchs of a family, noble men like this did not run. It was inappropriate to run. And this father ran to his son. It was an all-out sprint. There's another common thread in these stories that kind of ties them together, and that is that each story involves an all-or-nothing approach. I mean, there was this lack of realistic or conventional thinking on the part of all three main characters. I mean, think about it. If you have 99 sheep or if you have 100 sheep and you lose one, you know, what do you do today? You'd claim it as a loss on your taxes, all right? It's not worth risking 99 sheep, you know, for one dirty sheep. You know, the woman went searching for a coin. You know, this is one simple coin. You know, the father, his son ran out on him. And in the process, his son broke every social and family law that existed in this day. I mean, give me my money. I wish you were dad, dead, pops. But the father doesn't settle for the son that he still has at home. I mean, that's not enough for him. He's not satisfied until both are back with him again. And I think it's easy for you and I as Christians to get kind of lazy when it comes help to helping people find their way back to God. And it's easy to lose sight of what Jesus clearly commanded of us in the Word of God, that we are to be a part of this search. And it's easy to lose a desire to reach lost people, to get focused on ourselves. You know, you say things like, well, you know, our churches have enough people. We don't have enough seats or, you know, I've got it. Why should I worry about anyone else? I mean, look at it like this. Suppose I have three children. I take my kids to the park one day. All right, this is all purely hypothetical. It didn't happen. And I come home from the park, and I only bring two of my kids back. You know, and I walk in the house, and Jenny's like, well, you know, where, where's the third? Oh, man, you know, I left him at the park. Well, we still got two. You know, we'll be fine with that or whatever. You know, and we almost think God's like that. Well, you know, I got this church, and I got this group of people, and, you know, one or two of them slipping through the cracks. It doesn't matter. I mean, why did the shepherd search? You know, he searched until each and every sheep was found. Each was significant. 
You know, the coin had a sentimental value for this woman. It was the father's son. It was his own flesh and blood. And the final thread we see in the story is that each story involves a celebration. I mean, can you believe it? A party for one sheep? A party for a coin? A a party for a good-for-nothing, rebellious son? I mean, it seems a little strange when you think about it. I mean, to you and I, it's a scroungy old sheep. But do you know the shepherd? And to you and I, it's just one simple little coin, but I don't think you and I really know the heart of the woman. And it's just another kid. It's just a rebellious brat. But do you and I really know and understand the heart of this father? I mean, consider the primary person in each. If you know the shepherd, if you know the woman, if you know the father, you can know and understand why each item is so valuable. I think Jesus told us these stories to help us better understand who He is and what He's like. He told these stories so that you and I can understand the reasons why He lived like this and why He lived like that. And I know you're smarter than this, but, but in case you don't see it, Jesus is the shepherd in the story. And Jesus wants you to know that He's the woman in the story. And He, and I, he wants you and I to see that, that He's the Father in the story too. And He's not satisfied in losing one, even if it takes risking 99. And He's going to go to great lengths to find the one lost coin. And in the Father, we see that no matter how far you and I may walk away at times in our life, no matter how ugly our story might be, He's always waiting. He's always waiting for us to find our way right back to Him. And you and I, you know, as we read this story and as we think about who it is that we are called to be and what our church is to be like, as His followers, you and I are called to be like Him. We are called to love like He loved. And if we as His followers, as followers of Jesus, want to be like Him, then we need to become like the shepherd. Our heart needs to mirror that of the woman. And we need to be ready to welcome those back like the Father does. Our mission as a church, you know, goes, goes much further back than just eight years ago when this church was planted. Let me share a few Scripture with you. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 to 20, before Jesus ascended into heaven, then Jesus came to them and said, these are His final words, like, I got to go, and I've got something pretty important to tell you. I get five minutes, so here's my five-minute speech. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus said. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always, Jesus says, to the very end of the age. 
in Acts chapter 8, or Acts chapter 1, verse 8, uh, the Bible teaches us, it says, but you, you and I, it was then, it was true then, but it's still today. You and I will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, when God himself comes inside of you. When you make a decision to put your trust in Jesus Christ, then God comes and takes up residency inside of you. So the Holy Spirit, God himself is living inside of us. It says, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, at that moment when you gave your life to Jesus, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the very ends of the earth. That's our command. That's our purpose right there in that statement. That's what we're called to do. Acts chapter 2, verse 32. Peter says, God has raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses to that fact. We're a part of that. That's the mission that we're a part of. That's what we buy into. That's what we give our lives to when Jesus Christ gave his life for us. And Romans chapter 1, verse 16, when Paul writes, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. How many times have you been ashamed? of the gospel? How many times have you been ashamed to, to, to tell someone that you go to church or a decision that you've made in your life? I've done it. I've, I've been ashamed of the gospel, and I'm, I'm sorry to have to admit that. But Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel. Because why? Because it is the power of God for salvation of everyone who believes. I mean, hear those words again. Because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. What's the good news? What's the salvation? What's this gospel? For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, Jesus, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. It's helping people find their way back to God. It's you and I saying, you know what? I'm not ashamed of the message. I'm not ashamed of my life. I'm not ashamed of what Jesus Christ has done in me. And I'm going to commit myself as a witness of this fact knowing that the power of the Holy Spirit is working inside of me and can do immeasurably more than all I could ever ask or imagine. I'm going to be light. I'm going to be salt in this world. My citizenship is in heaven. You know, I am under Jesus' name. I mean, helping people find their way back to God, that is our mission. It's the gospel message itself. There's power in it. And you and I have been called, we have been commanded as followers of Jesus to help people know and discover what it's like to have a relationship with God made possible through Jesus Christ. And Jesus makes it possible. He makes it possible for you and I to help people find their way back to God. And we can rally around it and we can get all fired up here today and we can get excited about it and, and we can post our mission statement on everything and anywhere, you know, everything that we print, we can memorize it. But until you and I understand the magnitude of such a statement, and until the reality of it overtakes us, until we all get it, until you and I understand our responsibility given by Jesus, then it means nothing. We can say it all we want. We can write it on as many things as we want to. But until you get it, until I get it, and our lives reflect it, it means nothing. It's silly. I mean, it's nothing more than cute words, and we face the possibility of becoming like every other church. Nothing makes us, you know, any more unique. I mean, I find God working on my heart with this right now because I know that I'm not as nearly concerned about lost people as I need to be. You know, that my life is not the reflection of Jesus, that it always should be intentional about every minute of my life, of just being ready and prepared to share the hope for the, you know, the reason for the hope that I have in my life. 
you know, silly story. I mean, when I think back to high school, okay, and when I was a student in high school, I was not intentional about my faith. I prided myself on the things that I didn't do, you know, and the crowds that I avoided, but I did nothing intentional, you know, to share my faith or to share the love of Jesus with others. And, and I still bear some of the, the, the uh, embarrassment of not having done that or, or wish I would have been a little more intentional in my life, and that extends even in today. But funny story, Facebook. It's amazing what you can learn about people on Facebook. It's even more amazing what people will post about themselves on Facebook and sometimes get themselves in trouble. Here's one thing that's been absolutely fascinating to me, though. I've watched all of these high school friends or acquaintances become my buddies, you know, on Facebook. You know, we all do it, and we see how many friends we can get. I have been amazed to look at some of my friends' pages and see how their lives have been incredibly flipped upside down. To see them make statements about how they're living their life, or, you know, books that they're reading, or where they're putting their hope, and seeing Jesus, you know, in the lives of some of the people that I would never have given a chance to be changed at all. But it just reminds me that God changes lives. He transforms people. He gets a hold of people's hearts. You know, and sometimes people have to go off and they've got to run these paths of rebellion and then they find their way back to Him. They find their real way into a relationship with Him. You know, and I, as, as I see some of these friends, I just can't help but think, can we get excited about change and transformation and the work of God that He's capable of doing in anyone's life? I mean, helping people find their way back to God. I mean, if this is going to be our mission, then it has to be our passion. It has to be your passion. You know, I must own it in my life. You know, you must own it in your life and in your home, you know, and in your neighborhood and the friend group that you run around with, you know, wherever it is that you work. I mean, you need to get unsettled about people living around you who don't know Jesus. And the idea of lost people needs to break our hearts, you know, like it does the shepherd and like it does the woman and this father in this story. I mean, we can't make helping people our mission, and then wait for it to happen. I mean, you and I have to become something in the process. I mean, you and I are going to have to become something in order to be able to live this out. There is no program that we can create to fulfill our mission. There is no building that we can exist in or build or, or, or purchase that will allow us to live out our mission. You know, there's nothing that we can plan. We have to become something. You and I have to become something if we're going to live out our mission. And we're going to talk about that specifically over the next few weeks, about what it's going to require of you and me personally to be able to live out our mission as a church, because there's going to have to be some spiritual formation and transformation that takes place in each of us. And so as we close, what is the starting place? You know, that's the only question that I hope to answer this morning. What is the starting place? How can we allow our mission to motivate us and change us? I mean, how can you and I own this? And the only thing that I could come up with is that maybe it involves another picture. And I'm hoping that this picture can help. You'll, you'll see it on the side screens too. And it's a, it's a picture that hangs in my office. The, the painting is entitled The Return of the Prodigal Son. And it's not the original because if it was the original, I'd have a lot of money. I'd be very rich. But uh, it, it, the original hangs in a gallery in St. Petersburg, Russia, and this is the best print that I was able to get off of posters.com. But uh, 
it works for me. But uh, the, the, the original, the, this painting, was by a gentleman by the name of Rembrandt. And uh, Rembrandt was a Dutch painter who lived from 1606 to 1669. And, and he lived a life that in many ways portrayed the life of the prodigal son. He was arrogant. Uh, he lived carefree and recklessly. Uh, Rembrandt was a proud man. He was convinced that he was a genius. And everyone knew that he felt this way about himself. And as a result of his pride, he explored and tried a little bit of everything that the world had to offer. Uh, he loved sex. He loved money. He loved luxury. He was focused on anything and everything but God. Uh, Rembrandt was known for his self-portraits. Uh, if you look back at many of his paintings, he paints himself in, in, into much of his work. His earliest paintings depict a young man full of great fame and great wealth and great honor. I mean, he was rich. He had more than he ever needed. But unfortunately, his short time of fame and wealth in his life came to a really abrupt end. Um, while the first half of his life was made up of money and fame, the second half of his life was made up of grief and misfortune and tragedy and disaster. Uh, during, get this, during a short seven-year span, seven years, he lost a son, two daughters, and a wife to death, all at different times. Uh, he was left with a nine-month-old son who died, who too died at a young age. He lived with two different women in the second half of his life and lost both of them prematurely. The second half of his life was nothing but disappointment. And as he experienced tragedy after tragedy, his bank account ran dry, his fame and popularity fizzled away, he went bankrupt and signed over the rights to everything he had ever painted, all that he ever owned. I mean, a man who once owned everything at the end of his life had nothing. But there's one painting which he painted in the final year of his life, which is, expresses a lot of what Rembrandt discovered right before his death. Because you see this painting, The Return of the Prodigal Son, for Rembrandt is also a self-portrait too. You know, Rembrandt, if you haven't figured it out already, is the son kneeling before his father in the painting. Now, I'm no art critic. I didn't like the Etch-a-Sketch as a kid or anything, all right? But I've read some interesting reviews of this painting, so I'm going to do my best. But the focus of the painting, the bright colors, even the eyes from the side are all on the father and the reunion of his son. Look at this close-up. The painting is full of symbolism, but let me, let me point out a couple of things to you. First of all, notice the colors on the son who's kneeling. They're brown and dirty, used to make him look tired and worn out. Notice that his torn under tunic, it, it's more of underclothes. Some, somewhere along the way, somewhere along his path, his journey, he lost his coat. Maybe he sold it. His head has been shaved. You know, no long flowing hair is like seen in other paintings. He has the head of a prisoner. Hair was a mark of individuality, and he had no more. Notice his feet. His left foot is scarred. The right foot is barely covered. On one foot, he still 
has a portion of a sandal, on the other he has none. It's been a long, tiresome journey. I mean, everything about this son represents emptiness, humiliation, and defeat. But the celebration is about to take place because he's come home. Now, notice the father, if you would, for just a moment. The colors used here for the father, the brightness of his face are there to draw us to this point. All eyes in the greater painting are on the Father. And for the Father, I realize it might not be the best for you to see, but His eyes are weak. He is a half-blind old man. He's been waiting patiently. It's been hard. His stature represents infinite compassion, unconditional love, and everlasting forgiveness. I don't know if you can see his hands or not, but his hands are completely different. They are the true center of the painting. Every painting has a true center. The true center of this painting are actually the Father's hands. Here they are the instrument of the Father's eyes. It's like he's not really looking with his physical eyes, but instead he's looking through the touch of his hands. His left hand The one on your right is strong. It has a masculine appearance. If you look closely, you can see that with his son, he is literally gripping onto him. It's not like he's only touching him, but he also wants to hold him. It's a firm grip. The right hand, the one that you see on the left, is is a bit different. It's refined. It's soft and tender. It has an elegant quality to it. The right hand offers consolation and comfort. It's like the hand of a mother. And so one hand protects, the other hand encourages. But the son kneeling, it's Rembrandt. This is his story. This is where he was in the final year of his life after a long and difficult, you know, letdown of a life. This self-portrait represents the peace that he has found in discovering a relationship with his Father in heaven. You know, and the painting is really the story of the gospel. It's the good news. It's a picture that communicates someone who has found their way back to God. But it's also my story, whether I like to believe it or not. And it just might be your story too. I mean, it's that moment in your life, you know, when you surrendered your heart and your soul to Jesus. It's the moment when you experienced Christ's love in your life and Christ's forgiveness. I don't know if you remember that day or not, but it's more than that too. It's not just the moment when you gave your life to Christ. Maybe for you it's last year when you lost your marriage and you had nowhere to turn but God. Or when you lost your father or lost a child and you had nowhere to turn but God. Or it's when you messed up, and you messed up royally. But as a child of the Father, you experience the forgiveness that can only come from heaven. And for you, this painting represents the ongoing story of your life and of my life. And it's important for many reasons, but it's important for this one. And the thing is that if you and I are going to live out our mission to help people find their way back to God, know this, that our motivation to do so 
will not come from a program. It will not come from any specific training or an event, a building, a style of music, or even a service project or a mission trip that we decide to take. Our motivation as a people to reach lost people will come from you and I knowing and understanding the relentless love that the Father has for us. Your motivation for helping to fulfill our church's mission will come from you understanding the relentless love that the Father in heaven has for you. And when you get that, and when you know that, and when you're reminded of that, you'll be ready. Ephesians chapter 3, verses 17 and 19 says, And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. I mean, helping people find their way back to God, it's our mission. It's the what of who we are. And my prayer is that you'd be willing to make that your mission too, and how you live. And you know, maybe this morning this picture does something else for you because you know that you've never had a reunion like this. You've been on the run. But as the Scripture tells us in Luke chapter 15, maybe just now you're starting to come to your senses and realize that you want to experience the Father's love and His forgiveness too. We're going to sing a final song together. And when we're finished with this service, we'll have a team of people that are down in front that would love to talk with you and pray with you about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. Let's pray. God, I pray that you would teach us more and more every day what it is to live like your son, Jesus Christ. I pray that you would give us his love. I pray that you would give us his compassion. I pray that you would give us his motivation. And I pray, Father, that we would be willing to make a commitment as a group of people, as individuals, to go out and to live our lives for Jesus Christ every single day. Thank you for this church. Thank you for the mission that you've given us. And thank you for the power that you've promised to us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.